Revolutions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, recorded live at WBAI 99.5 in Brooklyn every Tuesday at 5. RPM is about doing the work, the work to build a democratic socialist future. Every week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in NYC. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. Hey, what's up, New York City? This is Amy Wilson. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute live from the new WBAI studios. We are a socialist radio show and podcast from members of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America. The Democratic Socialists of America is the largest socialist organization in the United States with 56,000 ma- members nationwide. NYCDSA is its biggest chapter. We are run by our 5,500 plus members and organizers who are working together to build Build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. Building democratic socialism in New York City just got a lot more challenging, but that won't stop our work. With our city in full-on crisis mode to stem the COVID-19 outbreak, organizers are leaping into action to support the most vulnerable, build networks of mutual aid, and continue working on their essential campaigns. On today's episode, recorded very cautiously and with care for the health of the participants, we'll be discussing the resiliency, courage, and initiative of socialist organizers in New York City and elsewhere in response to the existential crisis we're facing. I'm here in the studio, uh, six feet away from our engineer, Reggie, and uh, Jack Devine uh, is going to be co-hosting um, by phone. Everyone else who we'll be hearing from has either been a pre-recorded interview or they'll be joining us by phone throughout the show. So, Jack, are you there? I'm there. Yeah, what's good, everybody? This is Jack Devine, he, him pronouns, and I hope everyone is uh, staying safe out there in the midst of this pandemic. I am reporting live from my personal quarantine zone. Oh, my goodness. Well, thanks so much for for being with us uh, today, Jack, and we'll have other uh, comrades coming on throughout the show. Um, But first, we're going to hear the headlines with Simone Norman. After days of mounting pressure, including from the United Federation of Teachers, Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio announced that New York City schools will shut down as of yesterday. Remote teaching will begin next Monday. New York has suspended evictions statewide until further notice. All New York public library branches closed as of Saturday, and the Brooklyn and Queens systems announced closures the other night. Two Brooklyn Assembly members tested positive for COVID-19 on Friday, and the state legislature is scrambling to finalize a budget under the possibility that lawmakers will not be in Albany after this week. Stores around the city and state have been accused of price gouging on items that help neutralize COVID-19, such as disinfectant spray and hand sanitizer. Price gouging is illegal and can be reported to 1-800-697-1220. That's 1-800-697-1220. In an effort to combat price gouging and supply shortages, New York State has begun making its own hand sanitizer, which will be distributed to residents for free. However, the state is saving on production costs by forcing prisoners to produce the hand sanitizer. The incarcerated workers are paid an average of 65 cents an hour. In election news, Governor Cuomo has used his emergency powers to lower the number of signatures needed to get on the June ballot to 30% of what was previously needed. Petitioning will end on Tuesday, today at 5 p.m. The special election for Queensborough president has been canceled. 
Gothamist profile DSA endorsed candidate for state assembly, Zoran Mamdani. And in these times interviewed Farah Soufrant Forrest, the DSA endorsed candidate for state assembly in the 57th district. Thank you, Simone. Our headlines are brought to you by The Thorn, an incredible weekly newsletter by NYC DSA's Electoral Working Group, covering local politics and radical activism. You can subscribe at thethorn.nyc. So I'm here live in the studio. Um, we have Jack Devine uh, by phone, uh, who's going to be co-host co-hosting this episode with me. Um, and we have uh, DSA uh, comrades who will be calling in um, to talk about uh, today's topic, which is essentially um, what is happening, <laughs> uh, not to put too, too fine a point on it. Um, we're going to start by checking in with an active campaign um, that's being uh, organized by DSA's Socialist Feminist Working Group and some of their coalition partners, notably New York City for Abortion Rights. Um, and uh, we're going to hear about uh, not only what that campaign is and its its goals that it's looking to accomplish, um, but how it's adapted to the news of the last week, because um, we're very committed to um, getting done what we need to get done. So uh, to help me discuss uh, the Love Life campaign, I have Anne on the line. Hi, Anne. Hi, how are you? I'm great, thanks. You're live on uh, WBAI with Revolutions Per Minute. And um, how are you today? Doing okay, all things considering. Right, that's that's really the best <laughs> that anybody can hope for. Um, well, thanks so much for <laughs> for for coming in uh, by phone. Um, and if you wouldn't mind, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the Love Life campaign. So the Love Life campaign is launching this week. Actually, um, this is a campaign within DSA Socialist Feminist Working Group and supported by lots of other coalition partners. Um, we are targeting a group called Love Life, which is an evangelical anti-abortion group. Uh, they were formed in 2015 in North Carolina, and they opened a headquarters in New York City last fall. Um, so what they do is they get together every Saturday, um, and they send their congregants to uh, the Planned Parenthood Clinic on Bleecker Street mm-hmm. in what they call prayer walks. Mm-hmm. Um, so they get a couple hundred people together and they walk to the Planned Parenthood clinic and they pray outside of the clinic and they try to keep people from accessing reproductive health care at the Planned Parenthood clinic. Um, they also train what they call sidewalk counselors. Um, they're trained to more actively engage with, uh, with patients and with clinic staff. So their goal is ultimately to keep people from getting abortions at this clinic and to convince the public and use their very well-organized and well-funded organization and social media presence to try to convince people that life begins at conception and that abortion should be illegal across the board. Um, So the campaign that we've put together is um, targeting the church and letting people in the community know that they're there. Right now they've been flying very under the radar. Um, They've only been there for a few months. Um, and they work with a coalition of churches in the area. So it's not one specific church. It's an organization that brings a bunch of churches together um, in this kind of anti-abortion uh, prayer walk campaign. Um, so our campaign was supposed to launch next Saturday where we were going to show up outside of their church and table 
and canvas and let people passing by know that this church uh, is there and that they're sending people to harass patients at Planned Parenthood. Um, we found out very recently that despite the coronavirus outbreak, that Love Life is continuing to meet every mm. week and continuing to send people to Planned Parenthood. Um, their reasoning is that abortions are still happening. They consider abortion to be murder. They're trying to prevent people from receiving abortion care, um, despite the warnings to not gather in large groups. Wow, that um, is so incredibly disturbing to me. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's completely, um, yeah, just uh, inappropriate behavior all in all all counts right now. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you so might have said it, and you might have said it already, but I just want to make sure that people have heard clearly the location of the church that you were planning to picket. It's in Cooper Square, so it's right across the street from Cooper Union on 3rd Avenue and uh, 9th Street. Mm-hmm. So this is in the heart of East Village, Manhattan, and this is a an ongoing fight for abortion access that's happening right here in New York City. Yeah, exactly. And we think it's really important to stand up to all of these groups that are uh, opposing abortion right in the middle of New York. You know, we're very fortunate in that we have more abortion access in New York State than in other states. Um, But uh, these groups are very well organized and very well funded and powerful. And it's really important that we oppose them and that we expose their activities um, and gain as much support for abortion access as we possibly can and build a coalition um, of New Yorkers who are supporting abortion access in the state and also act, you know, being active in supporting abortion access outside of New York. Absolutely. So one thing that distinguishes uh, your campaign from your opponent's campaign, if you will, is that you are going to be respecting the social distancing and the isolation order in the name of public health. Um, because you are, you value, you value human life. Hmm. Um, so talk to me a little bit about how the campaign has been affected by what's happened over uh, the last week and how you've adjusted, um, your organizing, um, to, to conform to those, uh, restrictions. So we've started our campaign as a digital campaign. Um, we're going to kick it off this Friday. Um, we're starting off by uh, calling 311 and calling local elected officials uh, to let them know that this group is still organizing um, large groups of people despite the coronavirus pandemic. Um, so we're calling attention to the fact that they continue to meet uh, in violation of all the safety precautions. Um, and we're using this time as well to kind of build our base um, attract more people to this campaign, hone our messaging, work on our talking points. Um, start. We're starting a social media campaign, so we're letting people know who Love Life is, um, how they can get involved, why it's so important to oppose these right-wing groups. Um, you know, the other aspect of, of this organizing work is that, you know, we feel that these right-wing evangelical anti-abortion groups um, can also be breeding grounds for um, other forms of fascist organizing and white supremacist organizing. So Absolutely. we feel it's really important to call attention to these, you know, right-wing, really hate-filled groups. Um, so we're kind of using this, uh, you know, horrible crisis going on right now to try to build these weekly digital call-in days where we're calling people and we're posting on social media 
We're posting on Love Life's Facebook page to urge them to stop meeting during the coronavirus outbreak. Um, and then we're trying to mobilize people so that when the coronavirus outbreak passes, we'll be able to show up weekly outside of their church. We'll be able to physically show up and oppose them weekly outside of the church in the East Village. Wonderful. Um, is there anything that uh, those who are listening right now who might uh, want to learn more or get involved, do you have anything um, for them? Um, we don't have any social media page set up right now. We're working on setting up an Instagram account, so I would look out for that. I would look at the um, DSA uh, Facebook calendar of events. So we're posting all of the events on the DSA calendar, and that's the best place to find us. Great. And the, the organization is called Love Life. That's right. So we're calling ourselves the Protest Love Life Campaign. Wonderful. So we have just a few more minutes left in, in our time with you, Anne, and I'm wondering if you can give the nutshell version of why abortion access is a socialist issue. Sure. Um, I mean, bodily autonomy is what it really comes down to. Um, everybody is free to you know, make choices about how to control their bodies. Um, it's really the case that nobody can be free unless they have complete control over their bodies. And this is, you know, one of the most fundamental rights that we have. So um, I think as socialist feminists, it's really important that we have full access to reproductive health care and that that access is equal. So part of our demands as socialist feminists fighting for abortion access is also fighting for Medicare for all and free health care because um, we know right now that reproductive care is completely unequal. So, um, you know, this especially affects poor women and women of color um, who often don't have uh, access to reproductive health care. So part of the fight for abortion rights has to be also a fight for uh, Medicare for all, uh, a single payer health care system. Mm-hmm. And and maybe programs like universal child care as well that uh, support those who have chosen to have children. Absolutely. Yeah. Universal child care, paid parental leave, safe working conditions. So we very much believe in the platform of reproductive justice, um, which says that everybody has the right to choose to have a child or to not have a child. And uh, we need support for people who choose to have children. So we need to be able to raise those children in safe and healthy environments. And to do that, we need medical care. We need paid parental leave. We need safe working conditions. We need minimum wages, high minimum wages. Uh, we need affordable housing. We need affordable transportation. All of those things to help support people who choose to have children. That's equally important. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Anne, for, for speaking uh, with Revolutions Per Minute today. And we wish you all the best in your campaign. Um, and please keep in touch. We'd love to check in down the road. Sounds great. Thanks so much. And you are tuning in to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. To connect with us after the show, you can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com. You can find us on our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com, or on Twitter, at NYCRPM. Today, we were just uh, talking to Anne about the Love Life campaign, a campaign for reproductive justice, a socialist feminist campaign against the reactionary right. And I think amidst this crisis, this uh, coronavirus that is spreading not just across this country, but the world, 
it's going to be really, really important to not just think about our collective well-being and our collective health, but to organize and build solidarity uh, together and prevent the forces of reaction from seizing the narrative and really taking this crisis out on the most vulnerable people all across the world. You're, you're either seeing, as Anne was discussing in her interview, that these, um, these anti-choice reactionaries are disregarding the order and putting more people at risk just to shut down women's bodily autonomy. And you've already seen coming from the Trump administration this really, really violent rhetoric uh, describing this virus as something that is rooted in China when it is a crisis that we all face collectively and necessitates building bonds of mutual solidarity. And that's why um, for the rest of this episode, we're going to focus on the struggles for mutual aid and how some of these struggles are being led by people in our uh, society who are most vulnerable and most um, oppressed, face violent domination. I'm talking about people who are incarcerated, people who are locked behind bars. And this is a real horror. And I think we really need to think about a society that claims to be free, that puts millions of people in cages. But something I also uh, feel is really important is showing how these people are not just victims, but they're actively fighting back and trying to build power and really demonstrate their humanity. So um, earlier today, a, a comrade who um, does abolitionist organizing outside of the jails uh, spoke with uh, a comrade, Stevie, who is inside the Pennsylvania prison system. They spoke over the phone about the efforts at mutual aid and how this is really um, creating an environment of solidarity um, within the prisons so that the the people who are locked up there can really um, build power together and survive um, through this coronavirus and ultimately abolish prisons. So let's roll that clip. My name is Ian Alexander. I'm an abolitionist organizer from Pennsylvania and living in New York. And this is an interview that I recorded with my comrade, Stephen Wilson, who is currently incarcerated in Pennsylvania. I'm Stevie. I'm at ICI Fayette. I'm an abolitionist organizer inside. I'm a black queer person. who um, I've, been, I've been doing this for a couple of years now, organizing study groups. This is a call from Pennsylvania State Correctional Institution, Fayette. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. This is my second facility, so we have two abolitionist study groups. I have a transformative justice group and a book club that I facilitate here. Um, and so, uh, is that enough? <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. That's perfect. Thank you so much. Yeah. In a kind of dark way, it's also interesting to get that uh, little recorded interruption that we hear every time we're on the phone with someone inside, just to make sure that we remember that we're being surveilled. You're talking to somebody in prison. That's how you know, too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) We forget. All right. um, So I think... I think part of the use of this will be for folks who maybe haven't been familiar with mutual aid before and aren't um, 100% familiar with abolitionist practice. So just if you could say um, 
What is mutual aid? Why is it an important tool for abolitionists? And what separates it from charity? Okay. Well, um, I, first of all, I think abolition at its core is based upon relations, new, new sets of relations. Um, unlike the ones that we have now, these relations, power domination and relations that we have now. So I want to distinguish mutual aid from charity in three different ways, first of all. One is that it's based on a relationship uh, that you have with one another. Um, and you see most times the charity, especially in, in a form of nonprofits, is a thing where it's a, a, a service provider and a client. You know, it's a very um, – or someone can be even further removed. Someone is giving money. You don't even know who the person they're giving the money to. Okay, or someone's uh, providing some type of service and doesn't even know the person they're providing it for. So I think, first of all, abolition and mutual aid are, are based, based upon relationships, uh, no being in a relationship with each other, knowing each other, and being present for each other. That's the first thing. Okay, I think that, that uh, mutual aid is an expression of solidarity, uh, especially on the ground solidarity, um, and it doesn't always have to be um, something like material. As it's like cash or a gift in kind, but even um, I'm thinking about as I'm talking about this. There's a there's this practice in Haiti called um, combat, okay, and it actually started during the time before the revolution, when the the enslaved population wasn't responsible for their own well-being and any any advancement or improvement in well-being, and then it would come together um, as a community and it would be something that was a roof raising, right? People would come over. My name is Haiti called um, Combat, okay? And it actually started during the time before the revolution when the, the enslaved population wasn't responsible for their own well-being and any, any advancement or improvement in well-being. And then it would come together um, as a community and it would be something that simple as a roof raising, right? People would come over and they would eat together and they would help the person put the roof on their, their new house and things like this. And this is actual mutual aid. So I think the things that we distinguish between mutual aid and charity, one is that there's a relationship between the, the parties, the persons involved. I think that it has more to do with, uh, it's not always uh, cash or gift and kind, but even just being present and helping out physically uh, and emotionally being there for people also. This is part of mutual aid. And you don't really see that in charity, you understand? And I think it's not us once because it's non-hierarchical. There's no, there's not a hierarchy here. Where we have these service providers and these clients, and the service providers kind of basically dictating to the client, this is what you're going to do. Another thing I think distinguishes too is that a lot of times with charity, there's this uh, this thing of deserving and undeserving and respectability politics that plays into it. Okay, and that's not going. We don't do that with far as mutual aid is concerned. You know, where we have this dichotomy of those who are deserving, or we have to be doing X, Y, and Z. There's these conditions that are attached to our assistance or our solidarity with you, in a sense that you have to be this type of person. You know, innocent basically to, to receive this charity, and that's something that you see. You don't see in mutual aid, but you do see in charity. I hope I was able to, to actually kind of define that by distinguishing it from charity. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, that might be really helpful, too, to distinguish um, abolitionists from reformist so-called mutual aid projects to think about how they replicate charity with this line of deserving or undeserving or, or support for folks based on what kinds of charges they are in for. Yeah. And you also see what I said. First of all, you see the dichotomy, and then if they do accept you, right, you become a client and you must uh, hold to certain standards or you will lose that status with them. Okay, if you mess up, you may lose that status. You're no longer eligible for their assistance, and you're disposable now. 
that's not what we do with mutual aid. And I think also when I say being present also is that, like I said, with the combat, people were physically on the ground being present for people, helping them build a roof for their home, right? And, and a lot of times you see charity is a disconnect there. It's not actually about being present and among people, you know, and sharing the, the, the hardship they're going through and helping and lifting the burden off of them together. You don't see that a lot of times with charity. You know, it's, it's a remove that's there, you know. Um, and I just think that uh, it's, a, it's a different thing, totally different thing, and it's basically, first of all, off the relationships that you see amongst the parties. A lot of the mutual aid projects that we see right now, um, a lot of them have been established before the COVID-19 crisis, uh, but there are more emerging now and there's more money flowing into them. Um, a lot of them are targeted at um, raising money for incarcerated people's commissary books. So just to say, just so that we're really clear, could you just say, like, what is commissary and why is it especially important right now during this outbreak? Why is this form of mutual aid important for people inside? Well, um, commissary is basically like, you know, people are going uh, out in the world, they're going out to the market and picking up supplies, Right. They're picking up cleaning supplies. They're picking up things they're going to need, uh, possibly, you know, in this outbreak. It's the same thing inside. We have a commissary, which is basically a good store. We order our cleaning supplies. We order our toiletries. We order our food. Because the Department of Corrections is not going to provide these things for us. You know, they're not going to provide these things. Or if they provide it, we come sparingly uh, with lots of conditions, obviously. Um, and so, uh, I mentioned before, this facility, they give 32 cells, 15 minutes to clean their uh, living spaces. And they have to share one mop and two spray bottles. You have 15 minutes and 32 cells. It's, it's not going to happen. You can't really clean yourself. You have to do it yourself and buy the supplies yourself. So uh, it's important that people understand um, how things work inside of the prison. Uh, and I'm glad you asked that question. And understand that the money is going towards people being able to uh, sustain themselves through this crisis, whether it's cleaning themselves, cleaning their living spaces, having things to eat. You know what I mean? Uh, and that's really important. That's really important. Some people are, use the money to be able to communicate with their family uh, because uh, during this time we can't visit them. Uh, we can't visit our families. They, they shut down all visits. So we're trying to stay in touch with our family in the outside world so they need funds for that also. So we're appreciative of all of that. You know, um, but this is our regular. This is what we go through regularly you know, sometimes in here. So we're appreciative of all the efforts to get um, these uh, commissary funds to people inside. Pennsylvania, we, in Pennsylvania, prisoners are making 19 cents an hour. A bar of soap costs 85 cents. So you're working five hours to get a bar of soap. And that's if you don't have fines and court costs, because if you have fines and court costs, they take 25 to 50% of that away from you. So now you're working anywhere from 12, uh, basically, actually, you know, anywhere from 8 to 10 hours for a bar of soap. You know, and that's serious. You know, that's serious. And that, that, that's how much money they're making at 19 cents an hour. So, uh, it's the funds from outside really help um, because, like I said, someone trying to get two uh, two with toothpaste is three dollars and fifty cent. You know, wow. You know, I mean, I always get to work for a two with toothpaste. <laughs> it's amazing. You know. And yeah. We may not think about out there, but like I said, you understand that this is eighteen hours of work for a two with toothpaste. You know. Yeah. And that's if you don't have fines and court calls. You know, so that's why any help from outside really helps. It really, really helps, and we're appreciative of that. Yeah, so this is a major way that this already works, but like, what, what other ways do incarceration and punishment affect public health in general? Like, Obviously, if folks have to work 8 to 10 hours for a bar of soap, um, that's going to help spread contagion because not everyone's going to be able to have access to it. But what other ways do you see the... I want to tell you something. When I, I hear that. I say, first of all, I think that incarceration takes the public out of public health, period. Incarceration takes the public out of public health. 
And what I mean by that is that public meaning the common good, you know. Um, and so the fact is that we, we see what happens is that um, anything that, this, that, that actually engenders community, one moment, anything that engenders community and people coming together, incarceration destroys that or tends to destroy that, okay? That's the first thing. Um, and like you said, again, is that, um, and, and first of all, in our neighborhoods, us not being in our neighborhoods to be with our families during this time period right now obviously causes some stress because they, and once again, you can't visit with the people don't know what's happening with us. You know, that's, that's, there's a lot going on emotionally with people. It also creates, like, a, a horizontal alienation. You see that? Where in here, people feel, right, they feel um, isolated and alone, now, especially now because you can't talk to your family. You see your family, and then inside of here, you know, you're kind of, you know, uh, not being close to each other emotionally and physically. It's, it's, it's an issue. So really we're trying to make people feel united, making people say, it's okay, we got your back. You know what I mean? It's, it's all right during this time because a lot of people are feeling that, uh, like I said, horizontal uh, alienation. Um, and I tell you, so, you know, a community cannot feel healthy when its members feel isolated and disconnected, okay? And so... Incarceration also destroys, another way, incarceration destroys our social wealth and that we could be using to promote uh, public health. As far as how public, how being incarcerated affects public health, right, that, I'm, I'm going back to what's again, public meaning common good. We can't be there in our community right now, right, because we're far away from them. Pennsylvania, I'm six hours away from my family right now. My mother's living alone. I'm six hours away from her, and, and she's in the house by herself right now, right, because or going outside like that, alone, you know. And, and so both of us kind of string you, your nerves, basically, kind of drain. It's, uh, it's a drain on you, you know, uh, being here. And, um, and and here, like I said before, because you don't provide uh, the cleaning supplies, once something gets inside of here, it works through it We all get it. If a person gets a cold on a block, there's 100 people, 50 people end up with their cold. 50 people end up with their cold. Mm-hmm. So if the virus was to get inside of here, there's no doubt in my mind that we're, a lot of people are going to catch it. And because you remember that our our, our medical providers for profit, they're cutting corners any kind, any kind of way you can to try to make a dollar. So they don't really want us to come see them anyway. They decided to deter us from using the medical department. So if we catch it, some people, it'll be some fatalities probably. Definitely be some fatalities if we catch it inside of here. You know, because uh, you have a combination of, you know, we're all caught in like this, out the proper treatment, and the medical department has negligence. What happens? What happens? You know, you know, many guys here are double celled. Most guys are double celled. So your cell gets sick, you get sick. You know what I mean? Um, and that's just, another thing too is that you understand it. That it seems that we're an afterthought always. Persons are always an afterthought because you think about the natural disasters that were taking place, and the floods, and the hurricanes, and the storms. No one thinks about it. the prisoners are stuck, locked in a cell. Flood water is up, you know, three feet high and things like that. People aren't thinking about. There are people who can't, you know, evacuate. You know, we got people locked up and things like this happen. Earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, storms, and out disease outbreaks. What do you do with people in prison? You know, how do you how do you, how do you uh, uh, deal with those situations where people are locked up? You know, so that's something for people to think about. You know. Yeah, and that's one of the values for mutual aid projects outside. I think is that. They can kind of raise awareness into actively thinking about what's happening inside, right? I mean, even just giving five bucks, kind of, yeah. There are 5,000 carceral sites, more than 5,000 in America, in the United States. You know, if no one thinks about what happens to those people when there's some type of natural disaster or a viral outbreak, what happens to those people? Because we're most vulnerable. We're sitting there. If it gets in, where are we going to go? 
You know, I, I still need to think about that also. I was saying that, you know, I think that, that we came full circle from the beginning to the end in the sense that what is taking place has built, you know, solidarity between the inside and the outside. We are showing people inside that we care. And that's important. That really is important. I always talk about how, you know, we, we say things like we're concerned about people, but people say, what are you doing? What are you doing? And they're seeing it now. All right? And now this is why people are, are coming to it inside. You see it inside. Guys are being concerned about each other. You know, we're looking out for each other. We're sharing resources in here, and that's what it's all about. So let's come in full circle. Like I said, what's happening outside is creating this environment inside where people can actually uh, engage mutual aid in here with one another, you know, and it's beautiful. It really is beautiful, you know, and uh, I've, I've seen it uh, with the guys in here and how grateful and thankful they are and how it's changed relationships here. So I, I really think this is something that I hope continue. I hope it's not a one-off where people just say, okay, the, the crisis is over, so let's go back to what we're doing before. But to stay involved, to stay involved, you know, and stay connected. That's really important, you know. Um, and, and once again, you know, it's really amazing because the difference between mutual aid and charity, once again, is that we feel the relationship. We feel like we're connected to people, right? And this is not someone just looking out for me or, you know, uh, I'm some type of client that belongs to some, or I have to be doing a certain thing. We're concerned about every single person in here right now. Different colors, you know, different charges they've been here. You know, different genders, whatever, different religions, this is what it is. And we care about everybody and what's happening. You know? Yeah, so it sounds like you're saying like that mutual aid from outside actually helps build solidarity inside, like it breaks That's down the alienation inside. Yes, it does. It does. breaks down the horizontal alienation that a lot of prisoners feel on a daily basis. You know, I've seen it. The last couple of days I've just seen it. It's like amazing. You know, and I'm really grateful. Um, what has happened in one week? could probably take a year and a half to get done other places, you know. <laughs> That's amazing, you know. People are talking across differences, you know. This is important. This is important. And uh, the mutual aid makes that possible. It makes it very possible. So I'm, we're thankful. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I'm really, really glad we got to get that out because there's, you know, obviously a lot of things to be afraid of and worried about. And once the virus really breaks out in prison, it is going to be bad. But there is also this opportunity to build something durable through this to bring new people in and to make them think without being told about the harm that happens in prisons whenever something like this is going on outside. And the feeling that we have that if it does break out, we have people out there who are concerned about us. We're going to say, what's going on? You see that? Yeah. We, we, we feel that now. We really feel like we know if something were to happen and outbreak here, there are people out there who want to be concerned about it and find out what's happening, you know, and be concerned about us. Because some people have been in prison for a long time, and they don't have family and friends out there anymore. We just have each other in here. You know, that's all we have. So it's important, um, the work that's being done. Hi, so I'm here with Kay, who organizes with Survived and Punished and the Inside Outside Soap Brigade. And Kay, how can people get involved with the abolitionist mutual aid organizing? The Inside Outside Soap Brigade and Survived and Punished combined our funds a little over a day ago um, so that we could easily distribute the money to everyone and use both of our networks. Um, if you'd like to donate to the Mutual Aid Fund, you can go to bit.ly slash soap funds, so bit.ly slash soap funds. Um, you can also follow Survived and Punished on Twitter 
our at is survive punish ny and there will be links to donate to the soap funds but also um, there will be links for people to request donations um, and request mutual aid for their projects that are happening close to them well thank you so much for sharing that information with our listeners here on revolutions per minute and thank you so much for the organizing that you're doing thank you are listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. Connect with us after the show. You can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com. You can find us on our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com or on Twitter at NYCRPM. Uh, we have been talking about both the Love Life uh, campaign, which is organizing for reproductive health justice. And we were just sharing with you an interview um, that was recorded with um, a Stevie, an incarcerated person, and Ian, an abolitionist comrade. And then we heard from Kay, who is also an abolitionist comrade. So now we are joined by Simone Norman, who you earlier heard uh, reading out the headlines. Simone has been a guest on Revolutions Per Minute before. Um, you may have seen her on Twitter or in her uh, at a comedy show. Uh, so, uh, Simone, can you hear me? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, well, I just want to thank you so much for uh, joining us on Revolutions Per Minute live today. And um, can you... Explain, um, we just heard a lot about mutual aid um, from Stevie, but can you really, can you expand on that briefly, you know, the history of mutual aid organizing and maybe hit on some of the particular difficulties of mutual aid work during a pandemic that we're experiencing right now? Yeah, definitely. Thanks so much for having me. Um, fascinating uh, interview so far in this episode. I've really enjoyed listening. Um, so as we've heard from some of our comrades uh, before me on this episode, mutual aid is a, you know, a distribution of resources and services with the aim of mutual benefit, usually set up through uh, volunteer networks, usually quite a DIY feel. Um, it's been going on through history uh, as long as there have been communities, there have been people engaging in mutual aid. Um, one that I like to point to uh, and think about uh, from history would be uh, the Black Panthers Free Breakfast Program in the late 1960s. Local businesses donating milk, grits, eggs, toast, so kids could eat breakfast for free. Uh, these sorts of um, community resource shares uh, not only feed people and literally keep, you know, um, the lights on, so to speak, in our communities by addressing folks' material needs, but also builds constituency and support uh, and, and community. So mutual aid is so key as socialists. You know, right now there are a couple of different ways that we are thinking about how uh, we're going to make it through this pandemic situation. You know, as socialists, we want to lobby for uh, kinds of programs like nationalizing um, utilities, nationalizing the hospitals. Uh, Medicare rural, heard of it? Uh, national, you know, Spain was able to do that recently. Um, nationalizing uh, all of these goods and services that uh, obviously we, we would prefer those things to be nationalized always, but 
in the, uh, you know, fares on public transport, um, all of these things uh, are even more urgently needed to be free, universal, and accessible in the wake of um, a global public health crisis. Uh, so as, as socialists, you know, we are looking uh, for relief from these state-run programs, but we're also looking uh, to offer relief to each other in a way that does not involve the state. And as I said, you know, mutual aid is, is that big answer to that problem. Is how do we, if our federal government is, uh, you know, spoiler alert, failing us, <laughs> what, can, what can I do as uh, a, a person sitting in my home, what can I do to relieve the suffering of uh, uh, my neighbors, folks in my community, on just uh, even just a very hyper-local level, even folks just living next door to me. So mutual aid, you know, we are doing our best right now, but like you said, what, what is that going to look like in a global pandemic situation? This is really tricky right now. We can't really meet up with people in person. Uh, we can't really leave our houses it's hard to even put a flyer under the door of my neighbor's apartment building to offer assistance. I mean, I just found out COVID-19 can live on paper for up to 12 hours. Like, oh, my God, uh, how do we uh, distribute resources um, and services without accidentally, you know, inadvertently spreading the virus ourselves? So that is what makes this moment in particular so tricky you know we can't all just meet up in a park and have a potluck it's not that easy and breezy um so so we're at a very unique moment in history right now you know i think the principles of things like the black the black uh, panthers free breakfast program are that the spirit of that is living in our uh desire to uh, enact mutual aid right now but the logistics of it are tricky and new and uh, very much uh, subject to like the stakes are very high, right? Right. If you get it, if you get it wrong, um, you can inadvertently sicken yourself or others, and that's the whole point right now. Is we don't is we want to avoid that and flatten the curve. So it's a very fragile time, but that doesn't mean that we we can't uh, ignore the moral imperative to provide mutual aid. Absolutely. So. Hi, Simone. It's Amy. Hey, Amy. <laughs> hey, how you doing? Um, so we are going to have a little bit of time at the end of the show, as we always do, um, for people uh, who, who want to get involved. But can you talk a little bit about um, what's happened in the last week and sort of the, the response that we've seen in New York City DSA? Excuse me. What are the things that are have sort of arisen um, under these new conditions? Sure. Uh, so New York City DSA is in the process of, of doing two things. You know, a lot of folks are focusing on state budget justice, which is really important right now, trying to get this, you know, budget passed in Albany in a way that addresses our needs. But kind of an underground mutual aid network has sprang up um, alongside of that work uh, across the chapter in a way that is way more local and way more, you know, focused on mutual aid, as I described. So we have... Um, the Abolition Action Grocery Fund is super is super key right now. is one was one of the first initiatives to spring up. Um, this is a, a, a fund that you can pay into 
or request money from in order to buy groceries. So if you have some spare funds, you can, um, you can ship it their way. If you, if you are having a difficulty purchasing your groceries right now, then you can request payout uh, from the fund. So you can visit the, and I'll drop all the links and tell you how to get all involved with all that, but that's, that's being run by the New York City DSA Socialist Feminist uh, Working Group right now. So um, look them up on Twitter and you can find out more about that and I'll give you the, the link for that in a second. So also in addition to that, we have uh, the, the Mutual Aid and Disaster Relief Working Group in partnership with the Socialist Feminist Working Group and Eco-Socialism and rank and file members across the city. Oh my goodness, what a coalition. Yeah. Uh, quite the coalition. We don't have a name yet. Um, I'd like to call us the Corona Queens. I'm getting pushback on that. Um, I don't think we're going to get to be called that. Uh, but we have all of these different folks who are setting up a resource hub uh, with a master spreadsheet where folks uh, in every neighborhood of every branch of the city have have listed themselves in a directory offering services as direct and materially, you know, crucial as making deliveries or donating funds or offering rides to the doctor or whatever, and then as kind of casual and um, indirect as, like, you know, uh, offering, like, a Netflix password for someone who's just bored or, uh, like, folks who want to join a reading group or even just digital companionship, Um, folks offering all types of services and resources across the city and you can match yourself with the person offering that resource or support and then we're going to get neighborhood texting pods set up uh, in addition to help facilitate all of those local uh, um, hubs of resource sharing and that master document with all of the different neighborhoods where you can go on and match yourself to a resource that will be available very soon it requires quite a bit of um groundwork that we're still working on it right now um and like i said collecting and distributing these items is really tricky so we're we're working on standardizing best practices for that entire procedure so stay tuned um if you you know if you uh are interested in putting yourself on that spreadsheet or if you are in need and want to call upon your neighbors who are offering those services on the spreadsheet just Make sure you're following the New York CTPSA Twitter account, um, and we will be blasting that hub out as soon as it's ready, and it will be in the next few days. And uh, may I plug some of these these links I've been teasing out uh, to y'all now? Before you plug uh, the links, I want you to do it last, so it's the last thing that uh, remains on everybody's mind as they go into the rest of the evening. (laughs) And we're also going to... We can't wait. Yes. Okay, um, yeah, I'm, I'm freaking out. But, but well, I'm freaking Join the club. Um, so stay with us, Simone, Norman. Thanks so much for speaking about uh, the mutual aid organizing that, that's happening um, within New York City DSA right now. Um, here at Revolutions Per Minute, we have about 15 minutes left of our show. Um, so we like to invite you to call in and talk to us. Um, if you're out there, if you've participated in mutual aid in any way, um, Please give us a call and share your experience. Our number here is 212-209-2877. Once again, that's 212-209-2877. And while we wait... And while we wait... 
Oh, yeah, you want to go ahead, Amy? Uh, no, what what were you going to say, Jack? This is conference call. Like, this is everybody's going to be the, like the new reality that we're living in, right? Like the awkward conference call etiquette. And actually, Simone, that's an idea for your mutual aid, um, your mutual aid working group. Obviously, low on the priority ladder. No, um, it's top. I've been on a series of conference calls for the past 56 hours straight. So I would love some best practices. I think that's just jumped to the top of our priority list. Yeah, thank you. Uh, my my uh, my opinion, just based on someone who's been on way too many calls, is that if I'm on the call, I get priority to speak. Mm. But I don't know if that is necessarily best practice. <laughs> um, well, well, I would certainly I would certainly endorse that. I mean, what are some other things thanks. that we 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 don't have any calls coming in right now. Although you can call us, the number is two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven. But while we have a little bit of space and time, um, you know, and and a little bit of levity in the proceedings here, what are some levity. other some other best practices for uh, for conference call organizing? Hmm. Some other be- wow. This is the most DSA question I've maybe ever gotten. Um, best practices for conference calling is remember that not everyone always can uh, hear super well, and that's not just a tech issue. That's also, you know, an ability issue. Uh, So make sure you're speaking calmly and slowly. If you can get a sexy rasp to your voice, everybody always enjoys that. Um, That's not an ability. (laughs) That's just human nature. And, um, you know, make sure... Oh, here's a good one. Make sure you're set up Make sure your tech setup is uh, set up beforehand. I can uh, every call I've ever been on is like actually the weed in where someone's like plugging their stuff in and it's uh, maddening. So mm-hmm. those well, are my tips. Well, speaking of um, calls, we actually do have one on the Woo-hoo. line. Yay! Uh, somebody wants to talk to us, so um, let's let's get them live on the air. Hi, you're live with Revolutions per Minute. Hi. So I have an example of. Um, really the barter system, which I think is what you're talking about, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. And it was it arose naturally among women, and I believe it started in New York on the Lower East Side in the 70s, where women started a child care uh, cooperative. Right. And it was called Bananas. Mm-hmm. And people just exchanged numbers and made a telephone tree and called each other when they had a mutual need and, um, and shared their child care. Wonderful. That's a great idea. Thank you so much so, for... I'm not sure how that would apply. Uh, you have to create uh, social distancing, but you could do a certain amount of networking through the Internet. Absolutely. Or I've heard that um, you can also have trusted people who are in your networks who are also maintaining certain best practices for slowing the spread of transmission and, and do the child care co-op among them. So while I'm certainly not an expert, that's something that's definitely on the horizon for um, these next couple weeks and months. Thank you so much for calling in. And um, our caller actually raises a really good point. Um, they said that this was a historical example of uh, mutual aid organizing from women on the Lower East Side. And here in New York City, we have many, 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 many past examples of successful mutual aid organizing. Um, Simone mentioned the Black Panthers. That's that's one. But there are m- many more in the, in the people's history of, of New York City. And maybe in the coming weeks, we'll have opportunity to, to highlight some of that um, aspect of our city as well. And, and uh, just, talk about, yeah. just, just to add on slightly and maybe spin it um, into something about WBAI. 
I think, <laughs> in, a, in a time like this. Because I think there are some ways, you know, a lot of people, there. WEI is a complex place. I wouldn't say <laughs> exclusively describe it as mutual aid, but there is a way that as a community radio station that is highlighting voices that you don't hear on other platforms and is uh, talking about issues in a way that actually center the concerns of working people, but not just kind of the stereotype of a working person, but uh, people who are locked behind bars and doing work at slave um, wages. And so I think uh, the it, a moment like this really highlights the importance of having independent media, media that is not part of the corporate um, ecosystem or however you want to describe it, and that it's, it's really necessary to be um, kind of centering these voices and organizers um, so that people can connect to this kind of work and also sh- um, kind of share their solidarity. It was, it's so great to hear from a caller um, calling in on air to talk about uh, Child Care Collective. I mean, that's something that um, organizers and NYC and DSA have been doing prior to um, the coronavirus. I think this calls for a particular uh, set of circumstances but it is absolutely child care is such an important um, and necessary work that is undervalued in our society. And I think by kind of even centering the mutual aid of it, you really highlight how that's the necessary labor on which our entire rest of our society is founded. Absolutely. And, um, you know, as well as what you mentioned about um, the importance of elevating voices, the, the other thing is that, there's so much misinformation going on uh, right now. And, and in a crisis like this, rumors spread really fast. Um, and that can be materially damaging to people. So having news sources that you can trust, which I certainly hope Revolutions Per Minute is. Um, for I'm our- on the fence, but I'm getting, you're winning me over. Oh, Simone, you're killing me. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Simone, just Simone hit, us, hit us with you some links. everything but your headlines. <laughs> yeah, everything but yeah. I listen. I haven't been on a stage and able to do comedy in like three weeks. I did a comedy show two weeks ago, and I, and the, the microphone smelled like coronavirus. I, I'm, oh. I'm bursting at the seams with bad jokes. Sorry. Oh my goodness. All right. Well, we're gonna have to have we're gonna have to start doing like art shows and things. I think people have already started doing those. But for today's <laughs> show, for today's show, we are coming to the end of our allotted time. So in order to be good neighbors and and leave uh, on time, Simone. Why don't you uh, take us out and um, hit the listening audience with those links, which will also be um, distributed in a variety of other ways. Absolutely. If you are a Brooklyn resident and you need something delivered to uh, delivered to you, please reach out to the Corona Careers uh, team of volunteer cyclists who can probably bring you what you need. Email coronacouriers at protonmail.com. If you want to get involved with our New York City DSA team of mutual aid responders, please email NYCDSACOVID19. That's NYCDSACOVID19 at gmail.com. And finally, more than ever, please donate to the Abolition Action Grocery Fund if you can. To donate, go to, uh, it's a bit.ly link, so bit.ly slash grocery fund that's bit.ly slash grocery fund 
Thank you so much. Uh, that was uh, Simone Norman on the mutual aid efforts that have been happening in New York City DSA. Um, we are coming to the end of our uh, show this week for Revolutions Per Minute. Um, we are going to keep doing this show uh, as long as we have breath in our bodies, I think it's fair to say. Uh, so no matter what happens with uh, the next couple of weeks, you can be sure that um, your comrades at Revolutions Per Minute are, are really dedicated to keeping you updated on the socialist organizing that's happening um, in New York City. Hopefully here at WBAI, um, if that becomes impossible or Im- not advisable, we'll figure out another way. Um, but the organizing isn't going to stop because the abuses of capitalism are not going to stop. And in fact, they're going to accelerate. So um, we we are going to um, stay here um, with you in New York City and keep you posted on everything that people are doing to fight back. Um, I'm Amy Wilson. Jack Devine, do you have anything that you want to say? Yeah, I just want to add, um, not only will we uh, be giving recurring updates every week, but we will be back uh, tonight at nine with a special coverage of the primary results, even though those primaries should not be happening That's for health happening. reasons. <laughs> and, and, and we will be getting into that. I believe Simone will also be joining me. Um, I guess. And yeah, I'll come on. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Amy can call in if you'd like, uh, but no pressure. <laughs> so, we and that that's all I've got to say for the this. I'm uh, Jack Devine, and I'm Amy Wilson. This has been Revolutions Per Minute. We will see you next week. Yes, it's your